Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wag, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time in episode 49, we're going to compare the main vans available in the United States. I'm talking about the full-size vans, the vans people tend to talk about. We're also going to talk about the difference between starter batteries and leisure batteries, a tale from the road involving the Possum 2, a product review of four-way stretch carpet, and a place to visit that defies gravity. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining me here. I'm happy to announce that we have hit 20,000 downloads, and thanks to each and every one of you for every click. Seeing those numbers, while they don't really matter, it gives me a little extra motivation to keep going, so I appreciate it. I also need to mention that starting with episode, let's say, 51, give me a little bit of time, I'm going to ask you guys to submit tales from the road. And my vision is that sometimes I will have a tale and then sometimes you will have a tale. And you can submit them to me either as text in an email or you can actually send me an audio file and I will edit that down so it fits in the podcast. And if you do this and I accept your tale from the road as being of high enough quality to appear on this esteemed podcast... I will send you a swag bag. Yes, I will send you a bag filled with College of Curiosity swag. Now, I do not have any specific built-to-go swag as yet. If the numbers grow enough, maybe I will. But I do have a fine selection of College of Curiosity swag, some of which is suitable for van life. So, if you would like to send your tales from the road to me, you can simply email them to me at jeff at builttogo.com. That's two T's, not three not one. But now, on to the main event. It's been 49 episodes, and I have never done one of the most common episodes of any van life media, like YouTube videos or blogs or whatever, and that is to simply compare the full-size vans available in America. So currently in the U.S., and I was looking at the 2021 model year, there are five full-size vans available in the U.S. Now, quick definitions here. A full-size van is a larger van. That means we're not going to be talking about NV200s or City Express or Promaster City or Transit Connect. But you will find a lot of these names appear, and it's always been this annoyance to me that the companies name their little vans the same as their big vans. For example, the Nissan NV is a full-size van, and the Nissan NV200 is a smaller van. The Chevy Express is a full-size van, and the Chevy City Express is a small van, etc. The only one who doesn't do this is Mercedes, who has the Sprinter and the Metris. And for now, we're going to talk about the Sprinter. In fact, here are the five we're going to talk about today. We have the Nissan NV, that's letters, NV, the Chevy Express slash GMC Savannah, they're the same vehicle, the Mercedes Sprinter, the Ram Promaster, and the Ford Transit. Those are the five vans that are available today. And I'm going to start with the lowest price and then go to the most expensive. And a lot of you already know where the most expensive one is. But you may not know that the lowest price van right now available in the U.S., brand new, is the Nissan NV. They start at just $30,540. These are the least common of all the vans I'm about to talk about here. And they're also, some would say, the ugliest They are a strange-looking van. They look like a throwback to the 50s. They're based on a Nissan Titan 
pickup truck, which is a full-size pickup truck, and they just built this massive van back on it. Now, I've learned that they've actually made a lot more modifications than that. There aren't that many exchangeable parts between the two vehicles. The NV comes in only one length. It's a 20-foot-long vehicle. They don't have any extended versions or shorties or anything like that. The interior height for the short version is 410. That's 4 foot 10. So not too many of you are going to be able to stand up back there. And the high top version is a fairly generous 6 foot 3. They get 12 miles per gallon. That is their big drawback. They get the worst gas mileage of any full-size van available in the U.S. today. And they have a rear-wheel drive drivetrain. I estimate their off-road worthiness at about average. And they're average in how hard they would be to build out. For width, they're at about 6 foot 8 inches, which is pretty average. And if you're curious, they are built in Canton, Mississippi. Now, Nissan NVs are not super popular to build out. They're 20 feet long, but they have this big nose that eats up a lot of that. Their cargo space isn't that great. But if you needed a van that was fairly inexpensive and that could tow quite a bit, the Nissan NV might be a good choice. However, 2021 is the last year they're going to be available in the U.S. Nissan has exited the commercial van market and the NV and the NV200 are going away. That's the Nissan NV. Moving up in price brings us to the Ram Promaster. Now, the Ram Promaster is a strange vehicle. For folks in the U.S., they think of it as a new kind of futuristic van in some cases, but it's actually been around for 30 years. In Europe, it is known, actually, it's known under many, many different names, but the most common is the Fiat Ducato. A little bit of history here. At one time, Dodge was its own car company. And then Dodge merged with Plymouth and Chrysler and became Chrysler. And for a while, the Dodge and Plymouth brands were kind of the same thing. Like you had a Dodge Voyager and you had a Plymouth Voyager and they were essentially the same vehicle. Then they decided to make trucks and they had a truck that was called a Ram. So it was a Dodge Ram. And then Ram eventually became its own nameplate. So right now, it's Ram is the trucks that are made by Chrysler. They're not Dodges anymore. So the Ram Promaster, if you're looking for it and you're searching for it and you can't find it, don't look under Dodge, look under Ram. Now here's the weird thing. Chrysler was purchased by Fiat. Fiat now owns Chrysler and Jeep is also in there too. And that makes some very strange things happen. For example, the Ram Promaster is the same basic body as the ones you would find in Europe, but the engine is totally different. It's actually a Jeep engine because the Jeep's engine is actually a Chrysler engine. It's very strange, but this is good news for Americans because the Ram Promaster engine is in so many different vehicles that it's very easy to find parts for. At any time you buy a van, you want those parts to be in as many vehicles as possible because it's going to be easier to find them that way. And the Ram Promaster certainly fits in there. The Ram Promaster is quirky in a few other ways too. It comes in four lengths. There are four different lengths of this vehicle. And one of them is a diminutive 16 foot three. That is the shortest of all the full-size vans. That's in the 118 wheelbase, which is 
very small. I mean, this thing is a little bit longer than my NV200. The 118 is a strange vehicle, not too popular in van life, although right now it is my leading contender for my next vehicle. And then the longest version is 20 foot 4. So the longest Ram Promaster is actually longer than the NV. There's one high top option and it takes you up to 6.4. So that's pretty good and most people are going to fit in there pretty comfortable. The Promaster is unique in that it is front wheel drive. It is the only front wheel drive van that is sold in America, the only full size. Some people think it's good. Some people think it's it's bad. It's not as good for towing, and it's not as good for off-roading for two reasons. One is that front-wheel drive vehicles have this torsion beam between the rear wheels, and it's very low, and it, it makes this big bar that kind of prevents you from crawling over rocks and stuff. The other is that front-wheel drive doesn't perform well on things like loose gravel, and it tends to dig in. Of course, the solution for this is you go up the hill in reverse. Another pro, it is the widest van. It's six foot nine, which is actually the same width as the Transit, which we will get to. But the interior width is great. The interior width is six foot three. That's right. This van is six foot three wide. That is amazing. If you compare that with an NV200, that's only five foot six. It makes the Promaster a vehicle that you can put your bed in side to side without too much trouble for almost everybody. So if you're on the taller side, that's going to put the Promaster in that column because it fits tall people better. This is a very square, boxy van, so you don't have as many curves to deal with. And if you're curious, it is the only van sold in America that is not made in America. It is actually made in Mexico. Quick side note, the idea of American and foreign cars is all not a thing anymore, where F-150s are made in Mexico, and Toyota Siennas are made in Indiana, I think, maybe Kentucky, but no such thing as Japanese and American cars anymore. The Ram Promaster, technically an American car, is owned by an Italian company and built in Mexico, where the Nissan NV, a Japanese truck, is built in Mississippi. We live in a global society, despite what some people want to believe. Okay, moving up from there... Coming in at number three for expense is the Chevy Express slash GMC Savannah. Now, this is the last old school van available. If you go back to the 70s and 80s, you will see the Chevy vans, there's the Econo lines from Ford, and then there are the B-Series vans from Dodge. Those were the big vans. The Chevy Express GMC Savannah takes its heritage from those. It is a body-on-frame design. Actually, the NV is too. But that means that there's a frame and a body, and they're separable. You can actually unbolt the body and have just the frame behind, where all the other vans are unibody, meaning they're just one piece of metal. That's actually what makes them Eurovans. If you ever hear that term Eurovan, it basically means unibody because the Europeans were the first to introduce these unibody vans. Now, the Chevy Express and Savannah are super popular with certain groups of people because they're known quantities. These vans have been around for decades. Everyone knows everything about them. One thing to note, though, is that they stopped making the light-duty versions a few years ago. They only make heavier-duty ones now. And here's a little pro tip for anybody who hasn't caught on to this yet. All these vans have numbers like 1,500, 2,500, 3,500, or 150, 250, 350. That's what Ford likes to do. 
basically ignore all the numbers except for the first one. One, two, three. One is light duty, two is medium duty, three is heavy duty. That's true for all of these vans. Except for the Express and Savannah, they basically don't do that. They're starting at the two level. Just something to note that at $32,500, while they're a little bit more expensive, it's also a heavier duty vehicle than you would get with the others. The Chevy Express does have a fair amount of space inside, but it's only four foot four on the inside. It's one of the smallest roofs of all the vans. My NV200 has more space than that in it. It's a, it's, so it's really not a great vehicle for tall people. It does come in two lengths. One is 18 foot eight and the other is 20 foot four. And unfortunately, the miles per gallon, and this will vary a lot because there are many different engines available for this vehicle, but 13 miles per gallon is pretty much what you're looking at. It is, of course, rear-wheel drive, and uh, off-road, it should be pretty good. It has good ground clearance for a two-wheel drive vehicle. Build ease, it's okay. It's got, still got a lot of curves. And its width is only 6'7". It's actually the narrowest of full-size vans which is good and bad. Narrow means it's good in the city, and it means it's bad for sleeping side to side. And if you're curious, they are built in Wentzville, Missouri. Oddly, there is no high top available from the factory. You can definitely get a high top Chevy Express, but that high top is going to be put on aftermarket. They are not available from the factory. These are kind of old school and kind of a little bit old-fashioned vans, but from what I'm seeing, they're going to be around until 2023 at least. And again, it's one of the most popular vehicles ever built on the planet. Parts are going to be pretty easy to find. Next on the list is the Ford Transit. Now, wait, some of you might be saying, what happened to the Ford Econoline? Well, the Econoline stopped being sold as a van in 2014. And yet they still make them. But what they make is cutaways. They make them as fronts for box trucks and RVs and things like that. So, sure, you can buy a 2020 Econoline EU350, but it's not going to be a van. So I'm excluding them from the list. The Transit is the most popular van sold in the United States. 57% of vans sold in the U.S. today are Ford Transits, and they come in a whole crazy wide variety of shapes and sizes. It is the only full-size van that has three different roof heights. It has a normal roof height of 4 foot 9, which is not great, but it's okay, a medium height of 6 foot, and then the highest of all of them, at six foot nine and a half inches. That is plenty high. If height is your big thing, if you're somebody who's six four and you want to be able to stand in your van, this is really your only option, unless you do some kind of custom top that you put on yourself. Now these things start at $34,510, so they're a bit pricier. But this is the first one that we've mentioned that has an all-wheel drive version. If you want the all-wheel drive version, that's $39,205. There's also aftermarket four-wheel drive you can get for the transits. It is a more traditional four-wheel drive where you have to shift it into four-wheel drive, and arguably that would be better off-road, but they do have factory all-wheel drive now. A note on this, and this is probably true of the Sprinter too, which has all-wheel drive, the factory all-wheel drive isn't meant for going off-road. It's meant for dealing with snow and ice and things like that. If you're going to take these things off-road for any length of time, remember that the suspension should be beefed up as well, because it's not just about traction, it's about abuse. Now, the Transit with the three roof heights also comes in three lengths. 
The smallest is 18 foot 4, and then there's a 19 foot 10 version, and then a 22 foot version, which is pretty long. And, in a good note for the Transit, they average about 17 miles a gallon. There are two basic engines available for this thing. One is supposedly an EcoBoost, and then the other is a more traditional engine. There's all kinds of arguments about which one you should get, but average about 17 miles a gallon, which is pretty good for a vehicle this size. And they are normally rear-wheel drive. The all-wheel drive ones, obviously, are all-wheel drive. This makes them above average for off-road worthiness. If you were considering a van that you wanted to go off-road every once in a while, this would be a good one. The Buildies is average. It does have a lot of curves. The exterior width of the Ford Transit is the same as the exterior width of the Promaster. But inside, the Promaster is bigger. There's something about the shape of the Transits that eats up a bunch of inside space. And they're built in Kansas City. And then, the one you've all been waiting for, the poster child of van life in the U.S., that's not a Volkswagen, which are no longer sold in the U.S., is the Mercedes Sprinter. Everybody wants a Sprinter. You know why? Sprinters are really, really nice vans. But man, are you going to pay for it. The baseline cheapest Sprinter you can get is $41,790. Oh, but wait, you want the all-wheel drive version? Ah, $56,970. We're talking nearly twice the cost of a Nissan NV to get a Sprinter with all-wheel drive. The normal roof Sprinter is arguably a middle roof size. It's 5'8", which is pretty generous. And then the high top is at 6'7", which, which is great. They come in three lengths, starting at a tiny 16 foot 6, going to 22 foot 10, and then an absolutely massive 24 foot 2. They are by far the longest van you can get. That is a very large vehicle. <laughs> on the gasoline engine, they do about 14.5, but on the more popular diesel engine, they do about 17. Of course, in the U.S., diesel tends to cost more, and you have to add diesel exhaust fluid, which is an added expense, and often the mileage increase with the diesel is offset by the increased cost of the diesel. Now, as I've said, they come in rear-wheel drive and all-wheel drive, and they've been making them for years. And off-road, they're about the same as the Transit. Again, their all-wheel drive is not meant for off-road, but it will certainly operate there. You just have to pay attention to the suspension as well. The width is six foot eight, so they're a little bit on the narrow side of vans, which is good for use in the cities. And they're built in Ladson, South Carolina. The big thing about Sprinters, and, and honestly, I've never driven a Sprinter. I never want to because I'm afraid I'll fall in love with it. Maintenance is expensive and hard to find because it is a Mercedes, and having owned a Mercedes, okay, it was a smart car, you're going to pay a premium for having that little fake peace symbol on the front of your car. That said, Sprinters are super, super nice. So there's a comparison of the full-size vans in the U.S. Tech Talk. Why can't you just get a starter battery and throw it in the back of your van? I mean, it's a battery, right? Well, there's a reason. Starter batteries are different than leisure batteries because of the chemistry of them. If you think about how a car starts, you get in the car, you turn the key, the solenoid opens up, and what happens is the battery sends all of its power to the starter 
all at once. Your battery basically goes from 100% charge to like 50% charge instantly as it starts the engine, because that's a super power-hungry thing to do is starting an engine. And then as you drive, the alternator builds it back up. That isn't how you use power in the back of the van. In the back of the van, you typically will have a draw that will be smaller but longer term. So instead of releasing all its energy at once, leisure batteries need to release a steady stream of energy for a decent amount of time. And the way they charge is different too. Starter batteries charge basically what's called a bulk charge, where they just get a whole lot of power at once to charge them right back up. Whereas leisure batteries need their charging to be a little bit more tempered. Other names for leisure batteries, if you're shopping for them, you should be looking for things like marine battery or deep cycle, things like that. If you're looking at a battery and it has CCA on it or cold cranking amps, that typically means it's a battery designed to start the vehicle. Some of them are hybrids and they're designed to do both, but don't get a hybrid unless you're only going to have one battery, and I don't recommend that. Get a starter battery for the front of the vehicle and a deep cycle marine leisure battery for the back, and you're going to have batteries optimized for what you're going to be using them for. It's all about chemistry. Tales from the road. So way back when I was in college, um, during college break once, I signed up to go with this group to Florida. Now, I was going to school in West Virginia. That's West Bygosh, Virginia. Salem, West Bygosh, Virginia, as it happens. And the deal was this. The group would pick us up and put us in a bus and basically drive us to Florida in the Daytona area. And then we would ride bikes all the way from Daytona down to West Palm Beach, down on Route 1A on the Intercostal that, that was the basic plan. We all knew that was going to happen, and that did happen, and it was great. But that's not the tale. The tale is the bus. The bus was called the Possum 2, which we didn't think much of. It was an older bus, probably from the 60s, that had been heavily modified. And the 30 of us fit in, and we were fine. We were in comfy seats, and we were having fun. But we noticed that the ceiling was kind of low, which was fine. And... Eventually, one of us did the math and realized that West Virginia isn't that close to Florida, and we're going to be driving all night long. And were we going to stop at a hotel? We didn't actually know what the program was here. Well, we stopped at a rest area, and everyone got out and got snacks and stuff. And when we came back, it had been completely transformed. That low ceiling had dropped down and become a bed. One bed for 30 people. The entire top of the van dropped down, all the cushions came up, and made this gigantic sleeping area that we all crawled into and basically slept while the bus drove all the way to Florida. And the reason the bus was called Possum 2 is because possums travel with their babies on their backs, and that was kind of the idea. I loved it. It was some of the best sleep I ever got in my life. This massive, comfy bed filled with college kids and... Yes, we were sleeping with the thrumming diesel engine all night long. And we woke up at the Florida rest area. Welcome to Florida, where they were handing out free orange juice. It was just a really nice thing. And I've always loved that bus and how it was perfect for sleeping in. I honestly wish there was a way I could sleep in my van while somebody else was driving it and, ha and reproduce that experience. Those of you who are couples maybe can experience this. It may not be legal. It may not be safe. But holy cow, it was a lot of fun. 
Okay, product review. So I've, I've reviewed this before, four-way stretch carpet. If you're not familiar with this stuff, it is not really carpet. It's a kind of fibrous fabric that is stretchable and it's ideal for using on the walls of vans or any unusual shape that you want to cover. And again, don't get hung up on the word carpet. It isn't carpet. It looks like, well, it looks like the kind of stuff you would cover the inside of a car with. And I covered the inside of my van with, and I thought I'd do a review now that I've had it in there for two years about how it's held up. Well, the answer is it's held up really well. It's very stain resistant. It's not absorbent at all. It's easy to clean. And it looks just like I put it in. Uh, there's been a couple of little issues with it, though. There's been a few places that the adhesive has let loose. And I kind of knew this was going to be a problem. So I, I have a bottle of liquid glue, basically, that I, I carry with me. And if a little piece starts to come off a corner, I'll just glue it back up. But that's pretty minor. That is not a big deal. A bigger deal is that I tried to use it with Velcro. Now, if you take a Velcro thing and put it up on this four-way stretch fabric, it will stick. But when you remove it, it pulls out all these threads and it kind of looks terrible. Now, I did find a way to fix it. I find that a personal grooming electric razor with the one blade that goes back and forth does a really good job of shaving off those hairs. But hey, if you're considering four-way stretch fabric, I'm a fan. I think it's a great way to cover things, especially if you have limited space because it doesn't take up any space at all. And then of course, it's not gonna help you with insulation any. So if you have an insulation need, four-way stretch carpet is not going to help there. Another thing, it's also great if you're building some of your own furniture. Like you could put this on the inside of drawers or under drawers to make a nice smooth surface to slide in and out of. I made a compartment in the side of my van out of plywood and I covered it with the four-way stretch carpet and it blends right in with the metal walls. So I'm a fan of four-way stretch carpet and after two years, I'm still a fan. A place to visit. So if you happen to be heading to Florida to escape the cold of the north, there is a place called Coral Castle that you can visit. Coral Castle has been around for decades and decades and decades, and it is one of those paranormal places. And the story is basically, a Swedish guy comes to the United States, proposes to a woman, the woman says, meh, nah, and he's heartbroken. So the man spends the rest of his life building a castle out of coral blocks to win her love back. And he does. So much so far the story appears to be true. He does build her a castle. But what he does is not normal. Uh, the things he built and the way he built it seem to defy explanation. He was a reclusive man, and for years locals would marvel at how he was doing these things, lifting these 10-ton stones and putting them on the walls. Or in one case, he has this massive stone door that you can push open with one finger. Now, how can one guy lift all this stuff? And so there was all this talk about how he had solved gravity and figured out how to defeat it and all this stuff, and... Whatever. You know, it's a tourist trap kind of a place. There is going to be that sort of element. But the last few times I've been there, the owners have been very good about saying, here's all the legends, but look at this. And they show that just having an understanding of leverage and cranes and block and tackle and things like that would allow one man, and he wasn't a very big man, he was a, a, a very slight person, could do this and in fact did do it. 
All that aside, it's a beautiful place to visit. It's just south of Miami in Homestead. It's a great place to start a trip to the Everglades. You start at Coral Castle, do that thing, and then you can drive into the Everglades, go to Robert is here, a famous fruit stand, and head all the way deep into the Everglades. And I've been there a few times. I like it. Yes, I called it a tourist trap, and to some extent it is, but it's also a really interesting example of quirky architecture. I think it's definitely worth a visit. Resource recommendation. I just came across this. Um, It's called hmdb.org, and HM stands for Historical Marker. And there's also an app called Explore Here. And it's basically a database of historic markers. Now, I'm always saying that when you're driving down the road and you see that thing that says historical marker and there's a little arrow, you should pull over and read it. Those are some of my favorite moments of the trips I've taken of learning about this kind of stuff. And this is this app and website is a database of all those places. Put in where you are or just hit what's near me and it will show you all the historic markers near you. And it's fun stuff. People think there's this national government authority that goes around and puts up these historic markers. Nah, that isn't how it works. Civic groups get together and try to put up an historic marker. All they need is the approval from the local government or sometimes not even that. Some of them are just outright lies. All throughout the South, there are a whole bunch of markers trying to rewrite the history of the Civil War, for example. So you can learn that way, too. But historic markers can be put up by anybody for any reason. So there is no big official directory of them all. And that's what this app hopes to create. Maybe not official, but if you happen to find a marker that is not in the database, you can submit it. So this, along with Roadside America and Atlas Obscura, are my three good resources for finding something interesting in the area wherever you are. I'll have a link in the show notes, but if you search on Explore Here in your app store, you should be able to find it. Or if you want to go on the web, it's simply hmdb.org. Q&A. This is a little different. Uh, Last week I talked about alternatives to vans, and I talked about ambulances and the pros and cons of ambulances. And I got a note from someone who listened to that episode and then decided to abandon their build and sell their ambulance. I was a bit taken aback by this. It made me realize that I have a responsibility that people are actually going to listen to me and take my advice, (laughs) which, believe it or not, is not something I'd ever considered before. And I actually impacted somebody's van life journey. And um, I, I take that seriously. I absolutely respect their decision. But it made me think that I need to put in a little bit of a disclaimer here. While I endeavor to be as truthful and honest as possible, and while I do have a wide, rather unusual history with vehicles and living in vehicles, I am not the end-all, be-all. If you hear me state an opinion, and it is going to have a material impact on what you're doing, please check with other sources before you make your decision. Now, in this case, I talked with the person and I think they probably made the right decision. They got into an ambulance, were very excited about it, realized it was too much work, and now they're going to sell it and go to something else. I think that's completely fine. But talking to them really made me take a step back and say, whoa, I have to take this seriously. And I do. And because of that, if you ever hear me say something that's not true or you disagree with it or you think it needs to be expanded in some way, 
please let me know. I will absolutely dedicate time on the next podcast to correct any errors I've made or misconceptions I've put out there. So folks, I'm sorry to hear that you're giving up on your ambulance project, but I'm glad you're going to keep going and start on something else. And there's going to be somebody who's going to be really happy to get that ambulance. Thanks very much for listening to episode 49. I really appreciate you being here. Music, as always, is by Simon Wagg. Remember, I'm looking for your tales from the road. Please send them to me. You can find me at jeff at builttogo.com. And we also have a Facebook group, which is Built to Go, a Facebook group. And remember, until next time, what Rene Descartes said, if you would be a real seeker after truth, it is necessary that at least once in your life you doubt, as far as possible, all things. <laughs>